Welcome to Amplify Inclusion. I'm Claire from the nonprofit Aspire. Thanks for joining us for stories and conversation about disability inclusion. Today, my guest is Kenneth Jennings, also known as Coach Ken, founder and CEO of the Gridiron Alliance Foundation. In 1988, Ken was injured while playing in a high school football game and became paralyzed from the neck down. Ken is a longtime activist, working to mandate catastrophic injury insurance for high school athletes and helping to pass the Rocky Clark Law in Illinois. Ken is a recipient of the 2015 Governor's Volunteer Service Award. He's also a motivational speaker, a peer mentor at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, co-host of the Chicago Coaches Corner Sports Talk Show, and has been a high school football coach for over 25 years. I had the chance to speak with Coach Ken and learn more about how his experience drives his commitment to helping others. Here's our conversation. Ken, I'm so glad to have you with me today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, I've had the pleasure of hearing your story and getting to learn a little bit more about you and was really excited to have you on so that we can share your story with the listeners of our podcast and hear about all the great work you're doing. So I'm hoping we can just start off by going way back to the beginning, even before 1988. (laughs) And I'd love to have you just tell me a little bit more about yourself. So who was young Kenneth Jennings? Oh, young Kenneth Jennings before all this. Young Kenneth Jennings was a shy kid. Only time I was working was on the football field. But before that, I grew up in the projects of Woodward Gardens. And it just, for a lot of us, we just didn't see a way of getting out. And for me, my way of getting out was going to be through football. I used to pray in the morning, asking God to let me get my family out the projects through football. So I remember the first time I fell in love with football. I was about 10 years old. And my brother and some of his friends was out playing this game called throw up your tackle and take the football, throw it up real high. And there's one person down there. And then you got about seven, eight other people coming at you, charging you, trying to tackle you. So I get out there and the first time they do it, they throw the ball up there and I catch it. And as I look back down, I see all those guys running toward me. I threw the ball up in the air and ran my butt back in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so they do it up to me again. When I caught it, I look down. And I started weaving and dodging to get between everybody and got to the other end of the field without being touched. Ah, it was like that was the first time that I fell in love with football. So me growing up in the projects, it was hard seeing friends, losing friends to gang violence and lost about three friends like that. And that's hard. It makes it make you do two, two things. Either one, try to work harder to get out of the situation. Or two, you just go fall into it and accept it for what it is. And I didn't want that. That was not what I wanted in life. I wanted more. I used to wake up in the morning, run five miles, in, or two and a half miles in the morning and two and a half miles at night around the projects every day. Because I wanted more. I, I, couldn't, I was not going to sit back and what was in front of me thinking that was going to be my existence. So young Kendall Jennings, and I guess we got more in common than what I thought. Can you tell me more about how your high school journey started and how it was going with football and kind of then tell me about the accident? So my sophomore year, I played varsity. And at that point, it was I found myself. He was extremely shy, didn't say much, didn't talk much unless I was on the football field. Got through my sophomore year. Um, My junior year is when I was going to be starting. 
And the day I got hurt, I was actually starting both ways. That was my first game while we were starting in middle linebacker and fullback. I usually always started a middle linebacker, but this time it was just on both sides of the ball. And I was looking forward to it. But the week before, I had injured my back. Also an opening kickoff of the game. But, you know, being a player back then, you don't leave the game. So I finished the game, but my back was hurting so bad that my teammates had to take my equipment off. And all that week, I was just not feeling comfortable, like I shouldn't play. And on the day of the game, the routine that I usually have, I didn't do my same routine. I, you know, most athletes are superstitious, but <laughs> I didn't do my 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 usual things that I do. And opening kickoff went down. We kicked the ball off to them, and I was on the opposite side of the field for the ball got kicked. So kind of left my lane. And as he was going down the sideline, I hit him like around the rear page area with my head coming across in front of him. And as I hit him, as I started sliding down, his thigh came up and caught me under my chin. It snapped my neck back, caused me to shatter my 34th vertebra, um, rendered me a quadriplegic paralyzed from the neck down. And it was for me, it was instant. I fell on my back. And like all football, well, all athletes, when you, when you get knocked down, first thing you think about is getting up. So I did like I always did. I got up and ran to the sideline. But I ran mentally. Mm. Physically, I was still standing there. Try it again. Same thing. And at this point, I'm like, okay, something's seriously not right. So the teammate, he runs over to the sideline and tells the coaches that something's wrong. And they run over there. So I call it the pen test. They took my shoe off and started running the pen up and down my feet and asked me, did I feel it? I'm like, no. Then they come up to my legs and my thighs. I'm still telling them, no, I don't feel anything. So they come up my stomach, my chest, my neck. I didn't feel anything until they touched my face. And at that point, I got tears coming out of my eyes. But wouldn't none of the people look at me because they knew how serious it was. So I'm trying to look up at everybody and wouldn't nobody look at me. So they got a helicopter to fly me from the far south side to Northwestern Hospital. After they get me to Northwestern Hospital, I stopped breathing. You stopped breathing? Yes. So as they were trying to resuscitate me, I had an out-of-body experience. I'm literally in the upper right-hand corner watching them in the appearance of white and peace and everything, watching them frantically trying to cut my um, shoulder pads off me, my helmet off me, give me the bamboo bag, stop giving me chest compression. I'm watching all this. And not worried about a thing. Hmm. I'm sitting there just as calmly watching this. And for me, I think that was a bit of judgment on whether I should still be here or go to what next life or whatever life is after this. And I'm just blessed I had a chance to still be here to do a lot of things that I'm having a chance to do. Wow. Does it still feel very vivid to you, the memory? Yeah. And then I actually... Leading to my bedroom, I got two or three freeze frames of the accident. Hmm. And people are like, why you why you want to have it up there? It's kind of gory, don't you think? I say no. For me, and every time I get a chance to go past it, it gives me the opportunity to reflect from where I, where I was and where I am. Because that was a long fight to get back to here. 
there was a Chicago Tribune article in 2016 around the anniversary, right, of mm-hmm. your injury. And you described the day of the injury as the day you were reborn. Yes. What did you mean by that? On that day, the, the original person that I am was no longer. Uh, like I said, I was a shy kid. I wasn't vocal. Um, I was more to myself. I was more introvert. After that happened, all that changed for me. When I got hurt, they told me I wouldn't be able to talk. I was spoken in front of thousands and thousands of people. Told me I couldn't breathe on my own, and I've been doing that through the blessings of God. Told me I couldn't have kids. I got a daughter that's 27, grandson that's 30. So everything they told me I wouldn't be able to do, God has blessed me to be able to. So I celebrate that day because for me, I, I truly feel like I was reborn on that day. All the characteristics I had before are totally different from now. In some ways, I had to. Because I understood when I got home, I was going to have to be the people that teach my friends and family on how to work with them. So I had to be more of a take charge. I had to be more aggressive on the things that I did. And sometimes things like that is just bestowed upon you. You got to, you're going to take it, you're going to sink and swim with it. Mm-hmm. And as much as I hate swimming, I didn't mind swimming for that. <laughs> <laughs> um. What were some of the the new ways that you learned to navigate the world? I remember um, I did an article probably within a year's time after I got hurt. And they asked me, how do I see myself now? And at that time, I said, young, black, and disabled. I got three strikes against me, so I got to work triple time as hard as everybody else. And that's the approach I took. Going back to Simeon, that was my first fight as to be an advocate. Because they told me I couldn't go back with Simeon. I had to go to, it was a high school of used disabled. That's where you had to go to. And I went there for about a week and just didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel like home. So I asked them, could I go back to Simeon? They told me no. They said, because it's not accessible, which it wasn't. But, you know, anything is possible. So well, initially I thought I was about to take the Board of Education to court. But we ended up settling to let let uh, so let someone else come in and make the decision. And they chose to let me go back to Simeon. So Simeon had to make some adjustments. We had to go there. So a lot of my classes at that point was one-on-one classes, which was good. It gave me a chance to, before I got hurt, schoolwork was just enough to make sure that I was going to be eligible to play. After I got hurt, it was like, okay, well, you don't got football no more. <laughs> you got to find out another way to do it. So I became more... The truth, I chose to be more educated because I didn't have football to fall back on anymore. So I, I my, my GPA, when I got hurt, was like a 2.55, and I graduated with a 3.75. So that's what my focus went to. Ken, I'm just kind of curious. I'm thinking about all the things you had to learn, relearn, <laughs> unlearn, and then learn a new way, right, yes. so quickly. And you said that the fir- one of the first ways you identified was young, black, and disabled. And I mm-hmm. wonder, do you think your perspective of disability has changed over time? Yes and no. Because you still have some people that don't see us. I can tell you how many times, and this, this is like, the, like what I'm saying, but just a little example. When I don't hear somebody in front of me, and I would yell their name because I knew them. And they would turn around, look right over the top of me, never look down and don't see me. But in society, it's like, don't see me because they don't think we can do what other people can. 
when I first decided I wanted to coach, I was going to all the different schools trying to see if I would give me a position. Would nobody hire me? Mm. The whisper was, how you go coach somebody if you can't move his arms and legs? And my coach always told me football is 90 cent mental, 10 percent physical. Well, I got the I got the mental part. So one coach gave me opportunity. I went up to him. I told him what I wanted to do. He told me I'd be there Monday. Yeah, I have a hat for me and a whistle. I was there first day Monday. And since then, I've personally coached two All-Americans, been to five quarterfinals and three semifinals. And every coach that told me no, I've had a chance to beat. So people, they need to see us because we're one of the fast and rising minorities in the United States. Regardless of what you do or how you do it, when you do it, you're going to deal with somebody disabled in whatever capacity it might be. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to push us aside, you know, let us be a part of the party too. We want to see that, we want to see that today. And hopefully they'll give it to us. And a lot of times when you have someone disabled working for you, they're going to work harder than anybody else. They feel like every time they come into the office, they got to prove themselves. But you don't give, never give a chance. You'll never know. Right. And most of the times people will not give us a chance. You've been coaching for 25 years, correct? Yeah. Tell me more about that. So even like now, when football season get ready to start coming around, it's like I get that itch. Like, okay, time, time to get ready. And back then it was be physically getting ready, but now it's like mentally getting ready um, as a coach. You know, how am I going to approach the kids? are different now. How do I approach the kids? How do I talk to them? Oh, it's just, I, I can't wait. This is, this is my time of the year. <laughs> it's like even thinking about it, I just blow. Like, woo. I can see it. I can definitely see it. So where are you going to be coaching new this year? I'm, I'm going to be coaching at Dunbar High School. Okay. Um, on, the, on the south side. And I'm, I'm not going to be the head coach. The head coach is one of my former players. So I'm real proud of honor that he, that he asked me to come coach with him. How cool that you're coaching with someone that you coached. Right. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's real cool. I really, I'm, I feel good about it, proud. And I, like I say, proud and honored that he even asked me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what that also let me know that he really took in what I was teaching when I was coaching him. Mm-hmm. If he's willing to let me to be able to work with his kids too. Yeah. What's your approach to that? What's your philosophy when you think about the way that you coach and mentor these young adults that you work with? Well, my thing is, God has blessed me with a testimony, one heck of a testimony. They got so many layers to it and so many strokes on it. That's what I usually talk to my kids about. I don't just talk to them about football. I talk to them about life to let them know, one, football is not going to be here forever. At any given time, it can be taken away from you. Also, you know, if you if this is what you go to, go to school to play ball. Don't play ball to go to school. Don't just come to the school. That's, that's what you want to do to play ball. Use your abilities and let that ride you to college and get you a college degree. Something you'll never be able to take away from you. So my, my kids, and they are my kids. I remember one year I was running for the student, local school council, and they asked me about my kids. I said, well, I have 42 kids. <laughs> <laughs> I say one biological. And they're like, huh? I say my, my football players are my kids. So if something happened to them, then I, as a father, I'm going to be there to step in there for them. Mm-hmm. And I always, we always tell our kids, we're not done with you until you're done with us. So they need to come back 20 years later to ask for some help or need some help. I'm still going to be there just like their coach I was in high school. 
Mm-hmm. They never change. So that's a lifelong bond that I believe I have with my kids. So in that way, they know it's somebody that love them. Regardless of what they're going through, what they're going to have, they know Coach Kids still love them and be here for them. Mm-hmm. If nobody else will. Mm-hmm. It's like really fulfilling for me just to hear that you were able to reconnect with football in a different way and that that first love that you found just took a different shape and it's still such a central part of your life. I just think that's really incredible. Thank you. And then you're also doing a lot of work in the community. So I I know that you have been over the years really pushing for different legislation and rallying around different initiatives related to your experience and issues related to Mm -hmm. that, right? And I, I mentioned early on that you helped to get the Rocky Clark Law passed. What was the Rocky Clark Law? Rocky Clark Law um, that we had get passed here in Illinois was to get catastrophic injury insurance for high school athletes. Because the problem is most states don't have catastrophic injury insurance. So a young man or woman get injured playing high school sports catastrophically, there's no insurance to take care of them. And in a lot of circumstances, if their family can't accommodate them moving back into the house, they have to go to a nursing home. Mm. And one kid, 16, 17, 18, want to be in a nursing home. You're pretty much giving them a death sentence. Because mentally, you'll eventually check out. So what the insurance does is give them opportunity to go back home. And the foundation that I have, what we do is help them modify their home, help them get a vehicle if that's something they want to do so they can get around and move around again, and just continue to be there with different resources of what they need or whatever they may need to help them get through this difficult time. But part of that is having that law. And unfortunately, it was not at the numbers that we wanted it to be, but it's a start. Right now, we do have catastrophic injury insurance for high school athletes in the state of Illinois. There's probably 10 other states that have it. So I'm fighting and fighting and will continue to fight. I'm, I'm more likely going to have to go state by state to help them push this forward to get that passed in their, in their state too. To have catastrophic injury insurance. So you're trying to, one, raise awareness about the issue while at mm-hmm. the same time find solutions. And then it sounds like your foundation, the Gridiron Alliance, is there for a family that may experience a catastrophic injury. Mm-hmm. You're there to offer that support yes. and help them navigate that experience. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how it works. So, I mean, it's two different things, but the same thing. Mm-hmm. We want to give these kids every opportunity after this happens to find what their new normal is, and to take that and run with it. If they want to go back to school, go to school. If you don't want to go back to school, what do you, what do you want to do? And let's put you in that direction to be successful at Just giving them the resources that they need to do the things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. How long has the Gridiron Alliance been in place? When did you start the foundation? It got started about in 99. And what it was started with this one guy named Deacon Don, and there was seven guys that got hurt for playing either high school football or hockey. And we all here got together and created this foundation. Okay. Because we all in different areas. I mean, we all deal with the same thing. And so we were able to support each other. So we're like, okay, we can support each other. Now we can go out here and support others mm-hmm. that's going through the same thing. So they'll know that they're not alone. Because a lot of times when this happens to you, when you, when you become paralyzed, you feel like you're alone. I had a friend named Daryl Stingley. He got hurt about 10 years before I did. Um, he passed away about eight years ago. But he got hurt playing high, I mean, professional football. And I remember the first time I met him, he came into my room. 
and he changed my whole life at that point. He came to my room, rolled in like I was going to have to roll in. And first thing he told me, like, don't blame nobody else. Don't be bitter. Because all let's go do is take time away from your recovery. So by this time he came to see me, I was feeling like, okay, ain't nothing changing. So why am I working so hard and still ain't nothing changing? So I started missing some of my therapies. Not was as motivated as I usually be. And then he started telling me about all these things that he was still doing. Like he go out, he go out to party, go out to eat, speak with kids. Just doing all these things. I'm like, what? Like, hold on. I said, you you doing what? I'm like, I didn't think that was possible. But he became my best friend and my father figure. Hmm, And we didn't talk every other day. We talked every day. And he just taught me so much about life. You know, so much of dealing with how you see yourself in a wheelchair. It ain't what somebody else sees. So that helped my confidence just skyrocket. So I got back into therapy, was working hard, trying to get whatever it is I could get back. And it was like it opened up for me. Like I could do this. And to have him, when he got done, to roll out the room, that was the first time when somebody told me they understand what I'm going through, that I actually felt like they understood what I was going through. You've been telling me a few different stories. I'm wondering if all of these are going to be in the book that you're publishing. Yeah, I'm writing my own. And the title of the book is going to be How Eight Kenneth Jennings, How Eight Seconds Changed My Life. And the reason I'm saying eight seconds is when I got hurt, it was the first eight seconds of the game. And basically want to give a whole detail of my life from growing up in the projects, running, trying to run my way out of there getting into high school, leading up to my adolescence, getting into high school, and then after graduating from high school, I've had a chance to be a part and see a whole lot of different things over the years. I might have grew up a lot faster than what I should have, but I think it all molded me into who I am. I mean, it's going to be stories in the book of even when I was at my, at my lowest that I created for myself, being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm putting it all in there, um, not holding nothing back. Hopefully it's going to be something that's going to be very inspiring to someone else to motivate them to want them to do better. Because that's what I want for everybody. I want to be able to inspire and motivate other people. I know whatever it is I'm able to do, I'm blessed to be able to do it. Because technically, from what doctors say, I don't supposed to still be here. They gave me a life expectancy of 10 years. And it's going on 34 years. So wow. technically, I'm supposed to, I guess I'm living on borrowed time. And so every day means everything to me. Well, I'm really looking forward to when your book comes out. I can't wait to read it and hear the whole story. And I, I love hearing all your stories anytime I've, you know, had the chance to get to know you through the Institute. Thank it's you. just love hearing you speak. And you're so passionate about the work that you do and, and about motivating others. It seems like a very innate part of you to be a motivator to others. So I can't think of a better and truer name for you than coach. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It's been such a pleasure. Do you have any, you know, final messages you would want to say about just the importance of disability inclusion, things you'd want to our listeners to think about? Um, I'm going to give the first cliche. Don't never give up. Um, You're capable of doing anything anybody else could do. You just might have to do it a little bit differently with a little bit of help because that's what I tell myself. I don't believe it's nothing that I can't do. I just got to do a little different from everybody else. And when you find that part out, then you roll with it. Because I don't believe in problems. I believe in solutions. Mm-hmm. 
And and lastly, I'll just I would just say when you become disabled, and this is something that I tell my um patients now that I'm speaking with, become the CEO of your own body. Take charge. Because if you treat your body like a company, you want to be a successful. And if your if your company is successful, you'll be successful. So I have to hire fire caregivers. That makes me part of H and R. The payroll is done. That makes me part of um, accounting. I have to make sure that supplies are ordered. So I mean, that makes me work with inventory. So all the things that companies do, I do too. And I have to, and I, I have to work that. I want my company to be successful. And I call it Kendall Jenner's Inc. And I tell all my patients to do the same thing. Become the CEO of your own body. Take charge. Don't sit back and just let it happen. Make it happen. Thank you to my guest, Coach Kenneth Jennings. Join us next time for my conversation with Christina McLean, Deputy Commissioner of the Chicago Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities. Until then, stay connected with us at AspireChicago.com and be a part of the inclusive movement by rating and subscribing to Amplify Inclusion. This episode was co-produced and engineered by Subframe Sound. This season is made possible thanks to generous support from the Fred J. Bruner Foundation, Enterprise Fleet Management, First Bank Chicago, and members of the Aspire community.